This morning we come to the second sermon on the book of Philippians. Pastor Kevin preached on the introduction of the book of Philippians, the first two verses last Sunday. So today we're going to pick it up right where he left off in verse 3 of the chapter 1 of Philippians. If you are will, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. The inerrant word of God reads, I thank my God in all my, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you, all with my affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word because your word is true. I pray that this morning, Lord, you may give us a heart of thankfulness as that of the Apostle Paul in this passage, and also a conviction that would draw us to prayer and to worship of you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so it seems that this week into the new year, uh, a lot of things are going on, right, in, in our world, in our country, with uh, disease, sickness, uh, not getting any better by all the measures that we're seeing. Um, public and political unrest, not only in our country, but also across the world. So with all that, what is the Christian to do? Well, first of all, I've said before that I think... I have this conviction that the hostility towards Christianity is not going to get any better. It would actually increase the way that things are going. I think that my conviction would perhaps not be too far off. And that hostility towards Christianity could be political or objections based on so-called moral grounds or otherwise. The reason for that is because, as I stated before, Given all the controversy that we're seeing in our world, the most political, the most offensive, the most controversial statement, it is still, Jesus is Lord. That is because he is God, he is absolutely holy. And unless people repent, unless we repent, you will perish. There's zero exceptions. 
from the lowest of the lowest to the highest king on the earth. There's zero exceptions. That is an offensive message to the world. So what are we to do in these times? We are to be drawn to know God in a more deep and close sense. I am not so much concerned with the church being silenced or persecuted as I am with ensuring that God allows me to teach sound doctrine from this pulpit, whether publicly or whether underground. I'm also not so much concerned with government activists telling me that I cannot congregate or that I should not worship in such a manner as I am with pleasing Christ and how he wants to be worshipped. And I'm also not so much concerned about how to better do this or that ministry of the church, as important as that is. But rather, I'm concerned in studying and knowing the scriptures so that I can teach them to you, because that's my responsibility. I'm, I'm going to be held accountable for that when I come before my creator. And why is this important? Why should I be concerned with knowing scripture, with teaching scripture? That's because the biggest threat to the church does not come from the outside. The biggest threat to the church is having a congregation, is having people who sit in the pews and are biblically uninformed or misinformed. Still believe that's the biggest danger to the church today. But if we are not aware of that, we may think that we're okay. And we're watching a sermon or even attending a service. We may think that we're okay, but we're not. So let us come closer to God because that produces a biblical worldview. It brings us closer to a knowledge of and into intimacy with God as we study his word. That then brings a conviction to live the Christian life according to what God expects from us. So as a way of an introduction, that brings us to the book of Philippians, to the passage that we read this morning. The book of Philippians is by and large a book of encouragement. It is the letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to the relatively new church in Philippi in order to encourage the Christians in Christ in what Christ had done for them. And also to look forward to the day of Christ. This passage here mentions that twice. Looking forward to the day of Christ. And in doing so, that we should be servants like Christ. Paul identifies himself and Timothy at the beginning as servants of Christ. And is with the purpose of looking to Christ, who is the ultimate servant, so that we can be Christ-like. This brings the, uh, the Philippian church much encouragement, even though Paul is writing this as a prisoner in jail. He writes to them about an attitude of thanksgiving and then give us some insight into how and why he prays for the Philippians in the way that he does. 
So therefore, I've titled this message, Encouragement Through Thanksgiving and Prayer. We're going to see how the Apostle Paul is thankful. And then we're going to see what he asks for as a form of petition in his prayer. And to what ultimate purpose? What is he thankful for? What does he ask for? And the ultimate purpose, why he is thankful and why he prays. This will then help us to foster a biblical worldview when we pray. Prayer, what do we mean by prayer? It's our communication with God. We have a conviction that prayer should include certain aspects, which we've adapted and used the acronym ACTS, right? Conveniently enough, since we are ACTS Reformed Church. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. We're going to see some of that in the passage before us today. And as we see the other epistles of Paul, we actually see a pattern that Paul actually prays for certain things. And he's thankful for certain things, and they all have a theme. We're going to see the pattern and the theme of most of the prayers of Paul the Apostle. Which to then bring us the question, what do I pray for? How do I pray? What am I thankful for? Let us ask ourselves, the last time that I came in earnest prayer before God, what did I pray for? If you could step out of yourself for a second and see yourself and hear yourself praying, what did you pray for? So by looking at this passage today, Hopefully it'll bring us some alignment into the way that a biblical prayer should be. The first thing we're going to see is that Paul is praying with joy. Paul is praying with joy. Let's take a look at the first couple of verses. Starting in verse 3, it says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. So first of all, who does Paul thank? Where does our prayer start? It starts with thanksgiving to God. We may be thankful for brothers and sisters that help us bear our burdens. We may be thankful for family members that are there for us, but... First and foremost, Paul is thankful to God. Prayer is something that we do. It is for us to pray, but it is not about us, as we will see. Prayer is to begin and end with the acknowledgement that God is in control. So then another thing we learned here is that Paul remembers the church of Philippi in his prayers and he gives thanks for them. So if we look at the other epistles, Paul thanks God for the other churches as well and for the other people. But here specifically, he's letting the Philippians know that he remembers them in his prayers. I would imagine that the Apostle Paul had a pretty lengthy prayer list. And here he's telling them, I remember you in my prayers. 
So then that should remind us, when was the last time that each of us, in our prayer time, one, gave thanks for our church and prayed for people in our church? I mean, we are small enough that we can literally pray and intercede for each person individually, men, woman, and child in our church. When was the last time, especially for us leaders, that we did that for our church? Remembers them in prayer, is thankful for them. So Paul says that he makes his prayer with joy. This is an emotion of gladness. Remember, Paul is in jail. He's nevertheless saying that he's very joyful in praying. Why? It says because of the partnership in the gospel since the first day that the gospel was heard at Philippi. Because of the partnership in the gospel. That word partnership is not that some would make you believe partnership. Well, they have been giving me money in order to keep the church afloat. Sure, that may be part of it. Yeah, it may be part of it. Absolutely. That is not what Paul means. The word there is koinonia. That means true fellowship. The act of sharing in the activities and privileges of an intimate family of God. That's why Paul is joyful and thankful. Because of that type of close-knit koinonia, partnership, fellowship. Living life together. So then this lets us know that there is genuine fruit being observed and lived out in the church of Philippi. This was not just merely a social club. It was not a, I got to check the box and in our scenario, go to church on Sunday. No, that's not what it was. Rather, the Philippians were closely united with one another, having in common that they had been born again. They had experienced the rescue from their sin by the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what has brought them together, living life together under the Lordship of Christ. Because of that, they had this true koinonia, this true partnership in the gospel to where the priority of each of their lives had been given to living out their life in Christ with their fellow believers. You want to talk about being antagonistic to the gospel or experiencing persecution? You bet that type of scenario was being encountered by them. Now, Paul is joyful for that type of fellowship because that was not always the case in the expeditions and the work of ministry and evangelism that Paul did. I will point you to one reference that tells us that that's the case. 2 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelius and Hermogenes. And there's other instances in which Paul mentions that things in ministry are actually not going that well. There's people who turn away. There are people who infiltrate, who try to deceive, who rebel against 
the church and against God. But not the case in Philippi. It's actually a very good report of the church in Philippi. And that's why Paul is rejoicing. He is praying and being thankful with much joy. That's why Paul is so joyful. The true Christian life is being experienced by the people in Philippi. They're persevering in fellowship. And the signs of Christian living are being seen. So then again, do we have true koinonia here at Acts Reformed Church? Are we held together tightly by the gospel? Do we speak Bible truth into each other's life? Now, I know that at least among the men, both in person and via text, we talk a lot of theology. Oh, I love that. Believe me. But that's not true fellowship. As important as theology is, simply talking theology is not true fellowship in itself. We must go beyond that. Speak life to each other. Speak correction to each other. Challenge each other to walk in the ways of God. Not only know the ways of God. So that we can encourage, counsel, and like I said, yes, even correct each other in our everyday relationships and in our everyday lives. And the same goes for the ladies. I know that you guys have a very good Bible study going on. But if I were to be a fly in the wall... Would I be able to hear the ladies lovingly and patiently correcting each other or encouraging each other to reconsider their thinking or their actions with their kids, with their husband, with their co-workers? Remember, that is true fellowship. Walking with each other, admonishing each other, Correcting each other under the Lordship of Christ. Now, it is important to note when Paul opens up the greeting of this letter, he has some a couple of very important implications, which relates to what I'm just um, telling you now. First, he says that Christians are to be servants of Christ. He identifies himself and Timothy as servants. And therefore, we as Christians should look to be servants. He addresses his letter to the saints at Philippi. So this instruction is in the context of giving it to a church, to Christians. This is not a letter for people to read and get a couple of pointers on how to live a better life throughout the week. This is not what it is. This is giving to a church in the context of there are leaders, there are congregants, and they're going to be encouraged by the letter that Paul is giving them to admonish them, to encourage them. And secondly, it mentions overseers and deacons. Again, this is an implication that this instruction, this admonition, this Encouragement is being given in the context and structure of a church. He mentions overseers and deacons. 
So then to find the full application to our study, as we go through the book of Philippians, we must ask, one, am I a Christian? If so, am I under a local church? This is the only way that this type of encouragement can be applied to our lives. That's the context in which this is being given. If you're not, and you know you're not, then it's a time to repent and try trust Christ for your salvation. That's the first question. Am I under a church? Am I a Christian? And if you are, the second question is, am I part of a church? If you are not, I will tell you that you are in disobedience to the commandments of Scripture in order to live your life under the community of believers that God in his infinite wisdom has established his church, his body. So then Paul is full of thanksgiving and joy because the Philippians are enduring in the gospel thus far. And now he has a specific word of encouragement for them. Which brings us to verse 6. We're going to see how their perseverance in the gospel was started by God and is going to be finished by God. Which implies that whatever they're going through right now is also being sustained by God. Verse 6 reads, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God had begun a good work in the church of Philippi when the gospel was first heard and it was first believed among those who got called, who got saved. The key here being that God is the one who begins transforming a church, a people, a person's soul and spirit when they hear the gospel. How does that work? Well, let's go to scripture. John 6, 29 says, Jesus answered them, quote, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Speaking about himself. To believe in him who he has sent. How are people to hear and to believe? Well, Romans 10, 14 tells us that. It says, how then will they call in him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So we must believe in him who God has sent in Christ. But how are we going to believe in him if we don't hear, if no one preaches? That means that the, the word of God needs to be spoken, needs to be said. So then, okay, somebody has to believe, somebody needs to hear. But how are they actually going to believe? Do they need to be strong-willed? Do they need to be highly intelligent? Do they need to be of a specific type of caliber, intellectually speaking, so that they believe? The answer is no. For that, we'll simply go to one reference, of which there's many, but here's an easy one. Acts 16, 14. And I'll use the NASB translation here. It says, a woman named Lydia was listening. She was a seller of purple fabrics from the city 
of Thyteria and a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. You see that? What is the lesson we see here? God orchestrates all the necessary conditions in order for people to hear, to perceive, to believe in his truth. God is the one who orchestrates that. Now, of course, he uses his people to do that. But God is the one who is behind that work. And Paul was very joyous because the work of God had begun, because the Spirit was still at work, and God would complete that work at the day of Christ Jesus, meaning at the second coming of Christ. So by looking into the past, the Philippians know that God had begun to work. There's a work of ministry going on. There's believers being genuinely changed by their faith in Christ, being united by the gospel, having that koinonia. In the present, we're not exactly sure the state of affairs that they were at at that point. But just thinking from a human point of view, sometimes we're, we are fast to say that, well, things maybe were okay in the past, but right now I'm in trouble. Like there's no hope right now. Right? That seems to be a lot of times in, in, in the present, in the here and now. But Paul, he assures them and says, I assure you that God will complete the work he began in you. See that? So then, we can too look back at our life history and see whether God has begun a good work in us, a work of salvation when we first believed when he revealed to us the beauty of Christ, our need for Jesus, our need for a Savior, when we are convinced and convicted that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And he changed us, he transformed us, he forgives us when we repent. If we can look back and know that God has done that in our past, then we have the promise that God will carry out our sanctification until we meet Christ face to face. If you notice here, Paul didn't commend the Philippians for being self-starters, self-willed, you know, smart or witty in their, in their faith. No, he didn't say none of that or not even for being good Christians, so to speak. Rather, he assures them that just as God had begun a good work in them, he will be faithful to complete that work in the day when they meet Christ. So then that's a great reminder for us today that even if we are going through difficult times, if you are a child of God, the afflictions of this world as 1 Peter, Peter 5.10 says, are only for a little while, only. And those that trust God, everything works together for good for all those who love God, as Romans also tells us. And it will point us to the faithfulness of God and our constant dependence upon Him. God's faithfulness and our dependence upon Him. We cannot boast of anything.
So Paul gives them that encouragement. And it's encouragement for us now. If we are in Christ, God will complete that work in us. We will persevere by his strength and his grace. Now, Paul, he shows them that he has brotherly love, brotherly affection for them. The next two verses, starting verse 7, it says, It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul here is expressing his affection, his love, his care, his concern for the church at Philippi. And he gives the reason. He says the reason for that is because they are partakers, they share in common, they are pulled together in the grace that has been given to Paul. And then he says, first, in his imprisonment, in Paul being imprisoned, Paul felt the companionship of the Philippian church, even though he was restrained in prison. And the grace, the strength, the encouragement in that type of weakness, that type of position, that type of humiliation, especially in that day, Paul says that he knows that the grace of God allows the Philippians to partake of him in that. A way of bearing each other's burdens in that type of suffering that Paul was going through. Even in that, Paul is reminding him there is joy in that. So now, as far as we can see this far, at no point is Paul pointing to or indicating or, or will he say, hey, brothers, priests, uh, pray for me that I would get out of jail. He doesn't say that. See that? Now, I'll confess to you. Let's say, God forbid, I end up in jail and I communicate with you guys. You bet one of my first things for me to say to you is, please pray that I can get out of jail, right? But that seems that that's not even near the top of the list for Paul. He's not saying that, right? Secondly, he says that this is in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So the Apostle Paul here is not talking from the comforts of a palace or the luxuries that a famous religious ruler would have, either back in that time or even in this time, nor even the comforts of a nice pastor's office. No. He's writing this from a prison cell. And his rejoicing and hope in imprisonment are in a sense a defense and confirmation of what the gospel of what the gospel essentially promises. And that is joy in the faithfulness of God, regardless of our circumstance. You see that? 
joy in the faithfulness of God that is being manifested in the church of Philippi, regardless of his circumstance. Oh, that God will give us the eyes, the heart, the spirit to see that type of joy. That we can live that type of joy in our circumstance. Now, Paul is very aware that what is the worst that can physically happen to him? What is the worst that can physically happen to us? Physical death. Yet, how is it that throughout history, many saints, Paul included, have joyfully walked to their deaths, either by martyrdom, deny Christ or die, right? Or by putting themselves in the mission field, knowing that they probably will not make it alive. Even in this letter, Paul, by we know from other letters that he wrote, he perceives that his time is running out of being alive in this world. But yet, he's writing this letter of encouragement to the Philippians. And it is a manifestation, it's a testament, it's a testimony to the defense and confirmation of the gospel that Paul's aim and hope is not in getting out of jail, it's not in relieving himself of discomfort, but rather in the joy of knowing that God is faithful regardless of his circumstance. That is a constant theme in the prayers of Paul. So now we're starting to see a little bit more here. And I have to ask myself and I have to ask you, if we are honest, we can begin to see a contrast between my prayers, my motivations, and the prayers and the motivations the reasons for thanksgiving that Paul gives versus what I give. And there's an emphasis that perhaps my prayers need to shift just a little bit, or maybe a lot. Paul's emphasis then causes him to have great affection for the brothers and sisters at Philippi. This affection he says, is the affection of Christ Jesus. Within himself, from his own strength, from his own judgment, from his own wisdom, Paul cannot, would not have been able to have this type of attitude and encouragement for them. The only reason he's able to have that is because he tells us that is the affection of Christ Jesus, that he could then reflect and give to others. So then, Paul, having given thanks and joy, having encouraged the Philippians, he now does have a supplication, meaning he's going to ask for something. He's going to reveal that in his prayer, he asks for something of the Philippians. What is that? What is his petition? Brings us to verses 9 through 11. It says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's Paul's petition. Right, and sometimes uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul uh, can be a little bit convoluted. Sometimes they're like long run on sentences. But let's take a look at what he's saying here. His petition is essentially that the church he is writing to would abound, would grow, would persevere in love for each other. That's his prayer. That their love would abound more and more. But then, the type of love that he's talking about is not just any love that we use, you know, in our modern language. He says that that type of love should be with knowledge and discernment. Where does knowledge and discernment come from? Where do we look to for sound judgment on the most important things of life? We go to Scripture. Scripture and only Scripture. A verse that nicely sums that up for us is 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, All Scripture is breathed out, is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the men of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That means we do not look to the wisdom of the world in order to live our lives, because the wisdom of the world is lost. Our culture our leaders, whether political or otherwise, by and large, will actually advise you against what Scripture says. Contrary to a biblical worldview. And here's the general rule of thumb. If I am agreeing with culture, with celebrities, with politicians of our day, if my worldview even slightly trends with what the world is approving of, I do not have a biblical worldview. Get that? If I'm looking around and I'm agreeing with what's going on with most people that are cheering or advocating for stuff, if my way of viewing life is not different, I do not have a biblical worldview. Please understand that. Christian maturity then means being discerning. This is what Paul's getting to. Discerning. And that's what he prays for, that their love would abound, but with discernment. That the Philippians would be wise in the discernment so that they would approve of what is excellent. Paul has a very high standard. It's not mediocrity. It's not make sure that you're wise just to kind of get by. No, he says, so that you can approve what is excellent. This is not easy. And this necessarily means that there are things which the Christian must reject, must disapprove of. This means that not all lifestyles are honoring to God. Not all ways of worship are pleasing to God. God only approves worship in the way he has mandated. Namely, we must come to him through Jesus, the right Jesus. The Jesus in Scripture, not some made-up Jesus that we have made in our own image. No. 
Secondly, we must approve and live out morality in the way that the scriptures instructs us to. And morality, by the way, is not what saves us. Okay, let's not get that confused. The righteousness of Christ is what saves us by putting our trust in him. But the fruit of our salvation is moral obedience. D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, the pursuit of such excellence that Paul is speaking here does not turn on transparent distinctions between right and wrong. It turns rather on the delicate choices that reflects one's entire value system, one's entire set of priorities, one's heart and mind. Paul wants their hearers, hearts and minds to become profoundly Christian for otherwise they will not discern and approve what is best. Unquote. See? It's a transformation of mind and heart that will necessarily impact the way that I live. That is the type of love and discernment that Paul is praying for the Philippian church. I would say that's a way for us to be sanctified, to grow in our understanding of God and his word so that I can apply that to my life in the way that I think, in the way that I act, in the way that I speak, in the things that I approve and in the things that I disapprove. So by knowing biblical discernment, we then are able to distinguish what is evil and what is righteous. And Paul gives the end goal of this type of growth and living. What does he say? He says, to be pure at the day of Christ Jesus. That means the second coming. When you meet your creator, you're going to be found pure. Again, not because you did good deeds, but because your life is a reflection that you are a child of God. Your obedience is proof that you are a child of God. Paul says that there will be fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Right? The fruit of righteousness. So then, this will be ultimately for what? What is Paul's end goal here? In his thanksgiving, in his encouragement to the Philippians, in his prayer so that they would grow in their love, in discernment, so they could approve what is excellent. For what? What is all this for? Again, it cannot be simply so that they live a better life, quote-unquote. What is it for? Paul says that so that all this could be to the glory and praise of God. God is the one who revealed himself to us while we were his enemies. God is the one who orchestrated our hearing of the gospel while we had zero interest. God is the one who allowed us to understand the gospel while it was foolishness to us. God is the one who began that good work in us of salvation while we were dead to spiritual things. God is the one who currently sustains all believers, especially when we're the weakest. And God is the one who will complete that work when we meet him. 
Isn't that a great comfort for us? Isn't that a great encouragement that it does not depend on me? It does not depend on you keeping your salvation. We can rest knowing that God will bring our sanctification to completion. What we ought to ask ourselves is, am I in the faith? Am I a child of God? Am I being obedient? Is there fruit in my life? And maybe some of you may say, actually, there's not. It's okay. We can repent. We can trust in Christ. And for some of us, maybe it's, yes, I know that God started a good work in me. But I've been disobedient. And that's a call for constant repentance in the life of a Christian. So then I have three closing thoughts. As we study the passage this morning, major emphasis in prayer, thanksgiving, encouragement. It is often said that prayer changes things, right? And I would say it does. Yes, it does. But let us think discerningly of what that means. In a sense, there's a paradox that, as the book of James says, that the righteous, the prayer of a righteous man avails much with God. That is true. But yet, we need to be careful not to be quick to think, well, I mean, I have the righteousness of Christ, so I'm going to have this little formula going that I'm going to convince God to do whatever I want so that, you know, I could be more comfortable or even serve God in the way that I think is best. Or just to convince God to do something for me. I mean, he'll hear my prayers if I'm righteous, right? Let's be careful not to think of it that way. I will tell you that prayer does change things. And what I've constantly found in my most desperate prayers to God is that prayer has changed me. It has changed me to accept God's will and to give me peace by depending upon Him, regardless of the circumstance. And it has also changed me, and I'm a change in progress, right? Work in progress, to the way that I pray, to the way that I think of speaking to God. It is my prayer that God would keep changing us that way. But how does that look, practically speaking? Earnest prayer, thanksgiving, having in mind what God wants for us. These last couple of weeks, my family had a pretty strong trial due to my father and my mother being very sick particularly my father, and I think all of you know that. Now, thank God that my father is now recovering, and we are praying for his healing. But how do you think that my prayer life changed in this last two, three weeks? In those times where I go to God and 
and plead with him. I was constantly reminded of a wise theologian that said, we often ask God for help, but we almost never ask him for mercy. That was constantly replaying in my mind. So should I ask for healing? Oh, you better believe that I did. Oh, you better believe that I asked for healing. Yes. But in doing so, it brought much conviction to me that I have a lot to repent of. I have a lot to repent before God. And then it makes me realize, Lord, thank you for bringing healing, restoration, as it looks like he is. But then for what purpose? For what purpose should God bring that healing? And this applies to all of us, right? For my father, my mother, or for you, or for your loved ones. For what? And God has showed me that if he does grant healing, it should be with a primary purpose to bring more praise and worship to him. I'm absolutely convinced more than ever that if God grants us a loved one to be healed or us to be healed and we go back exactly to the same way of life that we had been doing to use the words of John Piper you are wasting your life. And I pray that God would teach me that so that there are changes in my own life. Not only during the times of trial, when we know that we need to depend upon him and that I may stay closer to him. Secondly, we should recognize where we are in the prayer spectrum. Do I pray? If I don't, I should. If I do pray, Am I praying enough? If I do pray, also, what do I pray for? What am I thankful for? May it be a constant reminder that our prayer life, our prayers should be tied to the models that we see in Scripture. An attitude of thanksgiving, praise being given to God. An attitude of repentance. And remembering that God owes us nothing. God owes you nothing. Yet, because we are his children, when we ask him for favor, he's so gracious that he grants us favor. But that'll be only out of his abundant mercy and kindness, not because he's a debtor to us. Never. It's only because of his mercy. Where are we in the prayer spectrum. And finally, let's remember that prayer is ultimately, as Paul tells us here at the end of that passage, for the glory of God, for us to align His will to our lives and have peace in it. 
And I'll leave you with this question. What do I pray for? What do you pray for? And then if our prayer is not granted, is my self-worth or is my dreams or what I most hold dear, do I see that in danger? Is that destroyed? That is a very crucial question because if what we most value is Christ, Christ will never be taken from you. So let us put our hope and our prayers pointing towards the perseverance that Christ gives us, his salvation, that work that he will complete in us, because that will not be able to be taken from you when you are a child of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your good. Thank you for your scripture, Lord. Thank you for the great truth that the work that you have begun in us will be brought to completion, Lord, on that day when we meet you face to face. Heavenly Father, I pray that our life in communication with you, our pleading with you, would be joyous, would be full of thanksgiving, that we as a church would abound and grow more and more in your love. As, a Paul, as the Apostle Paul teaches here, Lord, with discernment into what is excellent, that we may be people who are pleased in your word, in your commandments, that would be obedient. And that we would do all these things, Lord, for your praise, for your honor, for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.